What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank. Always a pleasure to be with you. And a really provocative, uh, interesting pair of conversations follows. And uh, we'll get right into it. There was a bizarre story, I consider it somewhat bizarre, uh, that the USDA, uh, the U.S. government, was involved in a in a program that tested on cats, kittens really, that it, it acquired from the Asian meat market, uh, which in itself is bizarre, but I guess they were buying these animals in bulk. And then they were being tested upon here in this country for uh, for a specific illness that they were trying to, in essence, produce in these animals. So uh, one of the things, that there are a lot of weird stories uh, that come out of this main story, but one of the things that comes out of it is, okay, it sounds pretty horrible, but does it lead to anything productive at the end of that? And the answer is no. And so in what is an ending that no one would have predicted, Finally, the U.S. government has stopped this. I say that because they haven't stopped a lot of other sort of heinous animal testing, and we'll we'll talk about that with our guest. Our guest is uh, from PCRM, an organization that's dedicated to uh, educating on just these matters. John Pippin is his name, and hello, Dr. John Pippin. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for asking. I'm glad to be here. You know, uh, uh, Doctor, you are someone who, uh, you are a doctor yourself, as I say, and you know a lot about uh, this world of uh, medical school and medical testing and results that produce uh, education as well as breakthroughs. Why would the U.S. government be involved in a program like this uh, that involves cats and kittens? What was this program? And then I want to generalize. We'll get from this to the general question as to whether animals should be used in, in uh, medical experimentation at all. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's the question, really. Um, the U.S. government, in all its manifestations, not just the USDA, but the FDA, the NIH, institutes, the Environmental Protection Agency, and, and so on, have for decades been involved in spending taxpayer money for um, experiments that have not only been unproductive, uh, but have been directed toward the benefit of private interests, uh, such as big agriculture, big pharma, uh, universities who need the federal support to keep their doors open and so on. Uh, <clears throat> the kitten research is one example, the most recent example, particularly egregious. The Physicians Committee was not directly involved in turning that around, but what's remarkable to us is that the federal government um, immediately uh, caved and uh, issued a statement saying that this research was not consistent with their mission. That really makes you wonder, uh, why did someone have to blow the whistle on this research in order for them to stop it? It had been going on for 37 years. Uh, for 37 but, years, they were buying cats from these various places and doing these operations on them? Well, they were breeding the cats, but they were, um, they were feeding them infected meat 
Oh, and, and that's what came from Asia, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, this campaign has been very uh, intelligently waged by uh, an organization called White Coat Waste Project and a former USDA um, veterinarian named Jim Keel. As I said, uh, my organization was not directly involved, but we have been involved and are involved with numerous other similar um, situations where government agencies just are operating uh, almost independently of the public will and spending public money for a useless experiment that, uh, oh, by the way, happens to harm and kill thousands and thousands of animals. Yeah, the, Physici the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, uh, we should say, uh, which is why you're such a good guest for this subject, is involved with education and discussions and, uh, in a sense, alternatives to uh, this, the awfulness associated with operating in, in all of these sometimes barbaric experiments on animals when the results aren't applicable necessarily to human subjects. Isn't that right? Well, I wouldn't say uh, aren't applicable necessarily. I say they aren't applicable almost universally uh, to uh, the uh, prevention, treatment, or cure of diseases in humans. The NIH has acknowledged in public statements that 95% of the animal research uh, performed to develop treatments for human diseases fails. And by fails, I mean that after succeeding in animal tests and then uh, progressing to human tests, uh, either the treatments do not work or they have serious toxicities not identified by animal testing. So there could hardly be a stronger argument uh, in favor of moving away from this animal testing to forms of testing that are more readily applicable to humans. So... Of course, then, one is left with the question, why does this animal testing exist? And federally funded animal testing exists in, in, in great numbers. Why? Why is this world uh, something that we are still talking about if it's not applicable to humans? Well, Mark, uh, part of the answer is that some researchers really do believe in this research. And they're entitled to their opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And the facts say that it doesn't work. Um, the rest of it is. Um, yeah, if it doesn't make sense, uh, it's about money, isn't it, doctor? The, the NIH alone spends nearly half of its discretionary budget, an amount of somewhere between 12 billion, that's with a B, billion, and $15 billion every year on research involving animals. The return on that investment, if you just want to be mercenary about this, is pitifully uh, small. And uh, Congress is beginning to take note of the fact that the billions of dollars are being spent by the NIH to conduct research on animals that uh, would just make uh, the public's jaws drop uh, and not even getting a return on the investment in terms of the diagnosis, treatment, or cure of human diseases. It's a, um, it's a very difficult thing to stop because the forces that favor it are uh, entrenched and have been for decades. And uh, it's, a, it's a battle that right now we are winning 
case by case, but eventually we have to win um, by acknowledging that using animals to research human diseases is ridiculous. So it's just big money. It's an industry then is what you're saying. And that's driving this animal research, even though there is no applicable result after all of those billions are spent. Well, um, I tend to avoid um, absolutes. I wouldn't say it's only the money, but the, the money is certainly the, um, the leg of the stool that's most uh, difficult to uh, remove. The um, arguments against using animals to uh, investigate human diseases, develop treatments for human diseases is to a reasonable mind, uh, irrefutable. But uh, Congress is deeply invested in this. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry depends on it, although they would save tons of money and produce better drugs if they got away from it. Uh, agriculture industry, and particularly the USDA, uh, spend untold taxpayer monies to do the kind of research you were talking about, uh, plus other kinds of egregious uh, research, such as um, leaving newborn lambs in open fields uh, unattended to see how they survive. And of course, they don't survive. They're eaten by wolves. They die of exposure and diseases and, and uh, so on, and uh, many other examples. Uh, the public, by and large, probably believes that the purpose of the USDA is to um, put a an interpreter between the agricultural industry and the public to try to ensure that what comes out of American agriculture is uh, safe and um, hopefully valuable for Americans. That's not the job of the USDA at all. The USDA um, is in the business of supporting American agriculture uh, however it can. For instance, the sale of lamb in America has fallen precipitously over the last number of years, and now the USDA is conducting all kinds of egregious research to try to boost uh, the lamb industry. So USDA is not your friend in that sense. They're not protecting the public, they're protecting the agricultural industry. Much the same holds true for some of the NIH, some of the 27 NIH institutes, for the Environmental Protection Agency, for the Food and Drug Administration, for the Department of Defense. This goes on in all of these federal agencies. It's often uh, happening under the radar and only when these things are exposed are uh, steps taken to um, uh, halt this waste of money, waste of time, and waste of animal lives. Yeah, uh, so well said. Uh, Dr. Pippen, I wish we could talk longer, we're out of time, but I want people to be, to be aware of PCRM. Again, the uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, you can go to their website, pcrm.org, and there are further discussions uh, about this world and all the work that you're doing and the people at PCRM are doing to stop animal testing. And of course, your work goes well beyond that, but that's a, a great place to, uh, to start to learn about PCRM. Uh, thank you for joining us today on The Conversation. Thanks for inviting me. That's an important subject, a waste of end to no productive end. Uh, the conversation continues in a moment. 
Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank. I want to introduce you to a terrific investigative reporter. She's an award-winning investigative reporter named Liz White. And uh, she's a reporter for the uh, for Consider the Source, the state politics team. And uh, she's, as I've mentioned, she's won awards. And in this case, uh, and her work involves uh, revealing, in essence, uh, what we all know, which is that uh, the makers of opioids continue to flood the market and continue to lobby, even as thousands are dying at the hands of opioid addictions. Please welcome Liz White. Hello, Liz. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so it's this coalition of drug makers that sold Washington and state capitals on the need for painkillers while thousands of people were dying from addictions to those very same painkillers. Your work helped expose that. What was going on there? Um, yeah, our partnership with Associated Press and the Center for Public Integrity, we did a big series looking at the lobbying and campaign donations made by painkiller makers um, when the opioid crisis was starting to worsen. Um, there, it was a three-part series, and we looked at First, how they attacked a 50-state plan to, um, they had over a 1,000 lobbyists during those years, um, and they would go from state to state and really push back on some of the limits that lawmakers were trying to put on opioids as more and more people were dying. Um, and they had front groups who would um, parrot their messages before lawmakers, um, that kind of thing. And then um, at the federal level, there was a whole... Um, echo chamber of talking points. They did a lot of lobbying to create this Institute of Medicine report um, that talked about pain as an epidemic, 100 million people suffering from chronic pain. Um, and so that as a result, they could go to lockmakers and say, look, we know people are dying from opioid overdoses, but we have to balance that with the concerns of pain patients. Um, and then thirdly, we looked at how opioid makers had also been boosting abuse deterrent medications as the solution to the opioid crisis when it really was unproven. Um, but we're still going from state to state getting lawmakers to pass laws that would encourage their use. Yeah, and as you say, going state to state, and you mentioned the lobbying, uh, it was really a remarkable effort. And that's what you've detailed is this tremendous amount of money that was spent way past anything the gun lobby spends, for example, as they went state to state and then just canvas Washington with this stuff. Yeah, during the period we looked at, uh, they had spent $880 million on lobbying and campaign contributions, which is um, more than what the gun lobby spent during that time. This is a lot of money. Uh, this is a group of drug makers such as Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, um, that had big blog blockbuster um, opioid drugs, as well as some of their associated nonprofits that they gave a lot of money to, such as the American Pain Forum. Is the way this works that uh, legislators need sort of a hook to hang, uh, letting the big pharma off the hook on, to use the word hook, to overuse the word hook, but I guess what I'm saying is do they need an excuse to kind of go, hey, it's hands off because, we're a, because of the issue involving chronic pain or whatever? In other words, is that how the lobbying works? They offer up excuses for lawmakers to look the other way? Uh, yeah, that sounds <laughs> accurate. Um, one of the talking points, like I said, was we need to balance these concerns. Um, and now, now a couple years later, as people have really woken up to how many people are dying, uh, I think that's um, less and less uh, a, a concern. But there still are, and 
not to minimize, there are pain patients with legitimate issues, but overall opioids have not been shown to be a good solution to long-term chronic pain. You actually end up incurring a lot more risk um, than you might otherwise have had um, for for being on opioids for that long-term use. I've Um, read studies that suggest that ibuprofen in appropriate doses can be more effective in relieving pain than opioids. I mean, in many, many cases. So uh, clearly uh, it flies in the face of a lot of facts, but as you say, it's such a big money industry. Yeah, and that's that's how um, the opioid crisis initially took off was there was a lot of marketing of opioids as not only a solution for terminal cancer pain, which it was initially um, given for in the early 90s, but uh, for back pain, for headaches, for, um, you know, I broke my ankle and I get home, sent home with a 30-day supply of really strong narcotics. Um, and as a result, a lot of people got hooked and eventually ended up switching to heroin. Um, and it, things worsened from there. Well, one of the things that uh, you point to is that the uh, lobbies, and I guess that these lobbies change their message, as you sort of alluded to even in our conversation. You know, there are a lot of uh, different talking points that they produce. Was uh, these tamper-resistant caps and, you know, in other words, we're going to make the drugs uh, safer under lock and key so fewer people will have access to them if they don't have a prescription. Yeah, so um, one of the... Uh problems that companies like Purdue Pharma faced was that their big blockbuster opioids were going to, their patents would expire um, and they wouldn't make as much money from them. And so what they did was they, um, in many cases, pulled them from the market and replaced them with quote unquote abuse deterrent versions. Um, So some uh, drug abusers at the time would uh, crush or snort their Oxycontin or, um, you know, shoot up with Opana or whatever. Um, and so these versions were supposed to be harder to crush, harder to activate in that way. Um, but you could still abuse them by just swallowing a lot of them. Um, they're, you know, they're still, they're still abusable. Um, but they were sold as this, um, really key solution to the opioid crisis. And, uh, uh, painkiller makers went from state to state and urged lawmakers to pass bills that forced insurance companies to pay for them at the same rate they would a generic opioid. Um, so, uh, as, and you you could see in different states and at the federal level, um, all these lobbyists coming out with the same kind of tactics of um, wielding a hammer and trying to crush the abuse deterrent versions. Like it was the same talking points everywhere, um, but a big lobbying push to try to make these. Uh, the answer and make a lot of money off of solving the opioid crisis. You know, Liz, you've done so much investigative work, and I'm just wondering, take I mean, this, this won a National Press Award, and uh, I'm just wondering, take us through the process a little bit. I mean, I'm sure it's quite painstaking. There's a lot of heavy lifting associated with this. But take us through the process of how you began this and, and sort of what the arc was of discovering the the method that the big pharma lobby went through, and, and indeed how you came up with this entire report once you reached critical mass. Uh, yeah, so I was interested um, in pharmaceutical lobbying because um, they're actually one of the biggest lobbies at the state level, even though they're primarily regulated at the federal level, which makes very little sense um, just on the face of it. And so I was looking at what they were lobbying on and found it was frequently opioid bills, um, among other things, and started digging in there and 
kind of trying to tally up what the lobbying strength was and came across more and more activity at the state level, including by some of their allied groups um, that you would not expect, like the American American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Um, and from now, there, is we that, decided is to- that a, Is that a case, sorry to interrupt, but is that a case, because you're right, you wouldn't expect it. Is that a yeah. case where, where uh, what's the relationship there? Why are they allies? Um, yeah, that, well, back, uh, back when the opioid crisis was first exploding 2015, 2016, um, yeah, they, uh, drug makers had given, had donated money to the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. And at the time, the Action Network actually even advertised on its website that they looked for areas of synergy with corporate partners. Um, and Cancer Action Network has a, a very, um, effective state lobbying network. They have lobbyists in every state. And so, Obviously, that's appealing if you're having, if you're needing to pull off a 50-state uh, policy agenda. Sure, and you'll talk um, to you'll talk to the cancer lobby before you may talk to the big pharma lobby. There's no harm in the cancer lobby, but they're actually right. representing big pharma. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and um, and you know can get patients to the table who are really you know um, sympathetic and who compel lawmakers. That's that's actually a, a common tactic for drug makers is to ally themselves with patient advocacy groups. Some of them have more independence than others, but for example, the um, American Pain Society, which was actually shut down after um, some other investigative reporting that was done, um, it was like ninety percent funded by drug makers. I mean, it was it was really just a shill organization. Um, and that that tactic is repeated elsewhere in pharmaceutical lobbying as well. The uh, the settlement that ultimately was reached uh, with Purdue Pharma was for how much? Uh, well, there there have been a number of settlements actually. Um, the the first big one was in 2007 um, when the Justice Department had gone after Purdue, Purdue Pharma for misleading the public about the risks of oxycontin. So. When it first marketed OxyContin, Purdue Pharma said this this is not likely to be abused. Like you really can't get addicted to this. It's really hard to do, which is of course not true at all. Um, and so they settled for six hundred million dollars, um, and, and um, which was huge at the time. And since then, um, more and more states and localities have sued Purdue and other companies because they've seen the effects on their towns and cities and are paying you know, huge amounts for emergency services and Narcan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so recently the state of Oklahoma settled with Purdue um, for 270 million, um, which that was kind of one of the first uh, lawsuits involving the Sackler family, which owns Purdue. Which was very interesting. Yeah, and and obviously it would seem anywhere there's a hint that there there might be more where that came from. Uh, Liz, what great work! Congratulations again on your award-winning investigative work, and we look forward to seeing the next thing that you produce. Thanks. Thanks so much for having Liz me. Yeah. Uh, that's it for today. What a what a pleasure to be with you. I'll thank you again. I have to read this. Thank you for watching the conversation. Jank will be back tomorrow with an interview with presidential candidate Wayne Messam. Stay tuned for the remainder of The Young Turks, which you can watch if you're a member. If you haven't signed up, go to tyt.com slash join. I should mention, I'm a member, I mean a paying member. I don't have to be, they could just give me a membership, and they have, but I still pay and I'm a member, and I'm a proud member, so I want you to be as well. By the way, my podcast is called The Edge. They've written it here, just in case I've forgotten, with Mark Thompson. 
Uh, we have actress Mary Kate Place from the movie Diane, which is a powerful movie. It's at edge-show.com. Thank you, and bye-bye. <laughs>